Thank you, Travis, very much. I invite you to turn now to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. We continue in our studies in Ephesians. This past week I <coughs> learned that B.B. Uh, Warfield, one of the finest theologians <coughs> America ever produced, used to say that Excuse me. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 should never be read in church. They should always be sung in church. And that's really the point that we were making last week as we got into this letter. You hear in these words Paul singing the gospel, singing these truths concerning our salvation. And we come now to three essential truths. In verses 3 through 6, hear the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself, his sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Almighty God, whose word is a gift of wisdom and insight, we ask that you would give us now a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of your word and in the knowledge of Christ our Savior. Almighty Father, we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know the hope we have in you as our majestic and merciful God. Reveal yourself to us, we pray, because we can know you only if you give yourself to us to be known. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Well, recently I watched a couple of movies about the D-Day invasion of Normandy, France, when the Allies achieved a decisive victory that determined the destiny of the war against Nazi tyranny during World War II. As many of us know, on D-Day, June 6, 1944, more than 160,000 Allied troops landed along a 50-mile stretch of heavily fortified coastline in northern France. And with the establishment of that massive allied presence in France, the back of Nazi rule and tyranny in Europe was effectively broken. After D-Day, there was no doubt that the Nazis would eventually be defeated, although bloody battles with pockets of Nazi resistance remained before the final day of victory on VE Day. <clears throat> Similar to D-Day, God has achieved a decisive victory in the life 
of every child of God that has determined his eternal destiny. You see, having established his presence and power in every child of his through this faith union with Christ, the back of sin's rule and tyranny has been effectively broken in every true believer's life. There is no doubt that God will bring every child of his safely to glory Although sharp battles with the powers of indwelling sin and the devil remain before the day of final victory when our Savior returns. And just as liberated Europeans cheered the Allied victory in France and the Allied advance, so Paul sings of God's victory in the believer's life in the opening verses of this chapter. Three great truths Paul praises in our passage. Put the believer's victory beyond doubt. The believer has been chosen for holiness. The believer has been predestined to adoption. And the believer has been blessed in the beloved. Nothing can defeat the advance of God's transforming grace deeper and deeper into our lives. These truths, I realize, of predestination and election just like all the truths about God involve mystery. And sometimes they stir controversy. But for Paul, these are immensely comforting truths. They help us see how great is this grace that saves us. And they move us to this humble gratitude and confidence and joy and praise and faithfulness and holiness in response. What are the three things that we see here? First, chosen for holiness. Verse 4 says, Believers are those whom God the Father chose <clears throat> before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him. When we understand what is involved here, it makes our hearts sing. Holiness is not dutifully refusing to do what you most want to do. That is the unbelieving mind's great misunderstanding. Rightly understood holiness is an electric word for believers. Holiness involves being near God and like God and given to God and pleasing God. Holiness is the path of true fulfillment as the great Augustine discovered. Augustine wrote, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure. But my friends, because of the remnants of indwelling sin, these pockets of resistance in us may weaken our desire for what is spiritually best and most satisfying to us. And so Paul encourages us to fight on in hope by revealing in verse 4 both the foundation and the destination of our salvation. The foundation of our salvation. The foundation of our salvation was laid before the dawn of time. Yes, as Paul says, God's blessings are ours by faith in Christ. But here's the question. Where did our faith come from? 
Faith can't be our own doing. Because as Paul says in chapter 2, we are naturally dead in sin and captive to the evil one. Spiritually dead people don't express the signs of new life. And so the new life that expresses faith must therefore be the result of God's work in us. And the origin of our faith is found in the eternal plan of God. Now, right here at the beginning of this song of salvation, Paul emphasizes that all the blessings of our salvation come to us because God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ chose us before the foundation of the world. And that makes the child of God's heart sing. So deep is the Father's love for us that he had us in mind before the creation of the world. God's election of the believer before time is the foundation of our salvation. And if we ask, well, why did God choose me? The only answer is because he loved you. And if we ask, okay, but why did he love me? Well, the only answer the Bible gives is that he loved you. And he planned to magnify his grace by giving you salvation. Oh, but surely there must have been something about me that made him love me. Perhaps he saw that I would choose him and believe in him. But when we say things like that, we're only showing how confused we are. Naturally, I am a person who is dead in sins. Naturally, I am a person without hope. Naturally, I am a person at enmity with God. There is nothing in me that makes God love me. The reason for his love lies in himself. Salvation is all of grace. From first to last, it is sheer grace. Now, when we begin to see this, we understand how so much talk about free will is confused. Certainly, my will is free. It's free in the sense that it is not forced. I am free to do what I most want to do, but I am never free to act out of character. I am never free to choose anything other than what I in my heart most want to do. And that's the issue here. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, for those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I need to be set free from my natural bondage by God-given life if I'm ever going to want Jesus and ever going to believe in Jesus. Now, if we object to God's sovereign election saying, well, I want what's fair, we're still confused because to demand justice from God is to demand to be justly condemned for my sin. Paul got this doctrine of election from the Old Testament. We read a passage earlier today about that. But he also learned it from personal experience. His free will led him to seek to destroy Christ's church. And it was only because of God's intervention rooted in his love for Paul before the foundation of the world that Paul was saved. You see, the truth of our election makes us sing when we dwell on the fact that that God loved me before I loved him. God loved me before I trusted in Jesus. God loved me before Jesus even came into the world, even before the foundation of the world. 
How deep is God's love for his children is, is as deep as eternity. And if it's that deep, it will last throughout all eternity. God always finishes the work of salvation that he begins. The foundation of our salvation and then the destination of our salvation. The destination of our salvation is holiness, Paul says. We are certainly not chosen because we are holy, but we are chosen in order to become holy. Now, <clears throat> we are very grateful that the moment we believe in Jesus, we are justified by God. The moment we believe in Jesus, we are accepted by God as righteous because our sin was credited to Jesus who was condemned for it and Christ's righteousness has been credited to us and God has justified us for it. And so being justified by God, by faith alone in Jesus, we have everlasting peace with God. But here's the point, precisely because we are accepted by God as righteous by faith, the Spirit of God sets himself to work actually making us holy and righteous as Jesus is. Being renewed in Christ, likeness is our destination. Now all of this is to say that, that since God chose us to be holy, we must and we will become holy one way or another. One way or another, God is going to have his will in our lives. D.M. Lloyd-Jones says, God who has chosen you to holiness will make you holy. And if the preaching of the gospel does not do so, God has other means and methods. God may strike you down with illness. God may ruin your business. But God will make you holy because he has chosen you for holiness. You see, God loves his children that much. God loves us with a holy love. God wants what is best for us. God refuses to let us waste our lives. He wants us to know the joy and the liberty of holiness, which is conformity to the likeness of Jesus. Holiness is the fulfillment of the new heart given to us by God according to his eternal purpose, chosen for holiness. And then second, predestined to adoption. Those whom God chooses or elects, he also predestines. Election involves God's choice of a people for himself. Predestination involves God's appointment of a destination for those he has chosen. Now, there is no higher blessing of the gospel than to be adopted by God as his beloved child. No higher blessing. I mean, you hear the thrill in the Apostle John's voice as he declares <clears throat> in his first New Testament letter, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. I mean, to know that, that, that I'm cherished by God the Father with the same intensity of love and devotion as he has for his son Jesus. To be able to come to God in prayer saying, Our Father in heaven, these are the highest blessings imaginable. 
And my friend, if you are down in the dumps this morning, I want you to consider with me now the twofold wonder of Paul's words in verse 5. First, the wonder of God's power. The word predestined bristles with the power and the authority of God. Does God have dominion over all things? Indeed, he does. Our God is a hands-on God. His rule is absolute. His control of this world is complete. We have obtained an inheritance, he says in verse 11, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of will. All things means all things. There are no exceptions. There is nothing that God merely permits that he doesn't also predestine. Every occurrence in the universe lies under the power and authority of God's predestination. The fall of the insignificant sparrow is under God's control. So are accidental events such as the roll of the dice. So are the free actions of people. Even the most spectacular sin in the history of mankind, the betrayal and the murder of the incarnate Son of God was according to, quote, the definite plan and foreknowledge of Paul, God, Paul says in Acts, I'm sorry, Peter says in Acts chapter 2, and then in Acts chapter 4, the believers confess that Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, were gathered together against Jesus, quote, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God's power is absolute. Is God therefore the author of sin? No, God is not the author of sin. Instead, he is sin's judge. Are people therefore puppets? No. People purpose and people act freely and they act responsibly before God. Judas' betrayal of Jesus was foreordained by God. Jesus prays to his father in John chapter 17 that he, quote, guarded his disciples and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas's great betrayal was foreordained and yet he acted freely, he acted willingly, he acted without being forced. Now, how these things can be is past our finding out. But the wonder of God's power is an immense comfort to the believer because you see God's sovereign power reminds us that we are never in the grip of blind forces such as chance or luck and that all that happens to us is divinely planned and that every event comes to us with God's invitation to trust and obey knowing that God's power works all together for the good of those who love him. The wonder of God's power and then the wonder of God's purpose. God's purpose for those he elects and predestines is their adoption as his children. He predestined us to adoption as sons, Paul says. All Christians, male and female, are sons in this sense that we are all heirs of God's blessings of love as his adopted children. Now, go to the Old Testament and you'll see something that's really remarkable. You'll see what a wonder this blessing of adoption in Christ is. In the Old Testament, it was never the practice of worshipers in Israel to call on God as Father. They didn't do that. But then Jesus arrives on the scene of history and all he does is address God as his Father. Now, no one in Israel had ever done anything like that before. 
But even more astounding perhaps is this. He taught his disciples to call upon God in their prayers by saying, Our Father who is in heaven. You see, this is the wonder of the gospel. On the cross, God condemned his son to hell for sinners in order to make every sinner who turns to him for mercy and forgiveness in Jesus' name an adopted, beloved child. Adoption is the wonder of God's eternal purpose for every believer in Christ. When I was a student at Covenant Seminary, our president then, Dr. Paul Koistra, shared the story, I think every year I was there at chapel at some point, about, about how he and his wife came to adopt the little boy that they named Paul Jr. And as Paul and his wife were sitting outside the courtroom where the adoption process would be completed, their caseworker instructed them. He said, now, now when the judge asks you why you want to adopt this little boy, don't tell her that you want to adopt this little boy because we can give him a nice home and we can give him nice toys and we can give him a first-class education. Instead, tell the judge, we want to adopt this little boy because we love him. The love of those parents for their adopted son is a picture of our Heavenly Father's adoptive love for those who receive Jesus. Now, my friend, are you in the depths of sadness this morning? I mean, does temptation seem so strong and God's grace seem so weak? I mean, does your faith almost seem to fail you? My friend, if you have Christ, then fear not. Because we walk by faith and not by feelings. You see, with everything against you, Come boldly, come confidently to the Almighty in heaven saying, My Father in heaven, there is nothing like this truth of adoption, I think, to remind us how great is the Father's love for us. The Father paid a mighty price to adopt you, child of God. Even the life of His beloved Son. And having done so, you may be assured He will keep you and he will comfort you, and he will strengthen you, and he will purify you, and he will refine you. And third, blessed in the beloved. What a state of privilege the child of God enjoys. We are blessed in the beloved one, Jesus. Every spiritual blessing necessary is ours because of our union with Christ, our Savior. Child of God, do you glorify in this privilege you enjoy of being in Christ? If you are in Christ, you stand on the firmest rock possible. If you are in Christ, you dwell in the strongest tower imaginable. And though the wind and the waves of difficulty assail, you prevail. Because you are united to the Almighty One who reigns over all for your blessing and progress. You are blessed and the beloved here, here, in Chattanooga, 
at this time in your life? And what are you facing now? What do you need now? Whatever you are facing, you face with Christ. And whatever you truly need is given you in Christ. I love the words of Charles Spurgeon. He says, the man who has Christ has everything. Spurgeon says, what, have Christ and be discontented? Have Christ and murmur? Beloved, let me chide you gently and pray that you lay aside that evil habit. If you have Christ, then you have God the Father to be your protector and God the Spirit to be your comforter. You have present things working together for your good and future things to unravel your happier portion. You have angels to be your servants both on earth and in heaven. You have all the wheels of divine providence turning for your benefit. You have your daily trial sanctified to your benefit. Spurgeon says your gains and your losses are alike profitable to you. And you are blessed in the beloved in heaven. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Paul assures. Is God in heaven blessing us down from there? Yes, he is. But Paul means more than that here. As Jesus is in the heavenly realms, so are believers who are in him. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 6, that the Father has raised us up with Christ to new life and seated us, he says, past tense, with Christ in the heavenly realms. We praise God. Not only because the Father is in heaven blessing us down here, but also because in Christ we are with the Father in heaven, being blessed by him there. And what's that mean for us in practical terms? It means, yes, it means that though disease still comes and finances are still hard and jobs and relationships are still difficult and, yes, temptations still trouble, there is no place where the Father is not with us. There is no place where he will not receive us. There is no place where he will not bless us with all that's necessary because we are united in fellowship to him in heaven. Now here's the question. Are you in Christ? This morning before the Lord, can you say, I am in Christ? And if you're uncertain about that, here's the question. How can you get out of yourself? How can you get out of yourself and into Christ if you aren't already? We said earlier that Jesus came into this world addressing God as Father continually. Ah, but there was one time when he didn't. There was one time when Jesus could no longer address God as Father. And that time was the cross. As Jesus hung on the cross, he endured the just wrath and curse of God for the sin of the world. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, Jesus could no longer call God his father because the father in love forsook his son to hell. In order to raise believing sinners up to heaven with him. Oh, my friend, believe in the Lord Jesus. Receive him as the gift of the Father's love to you. 
Receive him as a lamb of God who was cursed to take away the sin of the world and to gather you into the arms of God's love forever. Praise be to God for his grace to us in Christ. Let us pray. Almighty God, these truths that Paul highlights in these verses of Ephesians make us sing. chosen for holiness. You've chosen us to be like Christ, predestined us to adoption. You predestined us to adoption as your children so that we might know the same fervency of love that you have for Jesus in our hearts as well. Almighty Father, we stand amazed that you would forsake your much-loved son, Jesus, to gather every sinner who trusts in him into your household and family forever. Father, we praise you. We thank you. In the name of Jesus.